This podcast is also part of a pod course, which is available for credit on speechtherapypd.com. All you need to do is register for the course, complete the requirements, and you will receive credit. Speechtherapypd.com is a video continuing education company, a certified ASHA CE provider. Are y'all coming to ASHA in November? Well, then don't forget to stop by the speechtherapypd.com booth, number 669. And it's ASHA in Boston, November 15th through 17th. I'd love to say hi in person and hear back from y'all about what topics you think we should cover here on First Bite. While you're there, swing by Pessy Inc. booth, number 1138, to catch the latest on where my six-hour live-action ASHA and AOTA-approved CE course Pediatric Dysphagia, Establishing the Brain-Mouth-Gut Connection, is heading across the continental United States. Thanks for listening, and see y'all soon. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional. I'm your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast was, like most creative processes, birthed from a combination of several cups of coffees and, honestly, even more questions posed by a series of impassioned graduate students that I've had the pleasure of supervising over the last several years. First Bite's mission is to answer those questions that we've all had, but we've either been too afraid to ask or we didn't have the subject matter expert saved to our own personal speed dials. So, do you too have more questions and answers when it comes to treating your medically complex and fragile pediatric patients? Are you unsure if the signs and symptoms that you're observing are indicative of an allergy, maybe an underlying GI issues, or could they possibly be neurologically driven? How many questions do you really have for that registered dietitian regarding the formulas prescribed and the flow rate through that patient's G-tube? Have you ever been consulted for a quote-unquote difficult latch, only to find out that the mother is exclusively breastfeeding, but you've never nursed a little one or worked with the breastfed patient before? And what about functional communication? Are you so over flashcards, but you need advice on how to get started with core vocabulary with a non-speech-generating device or how to find the right fit for a speech-generating device? Do you have additional worries about the basic day-to-day running and documentation of your private practice? How do you go about obtaining referrals or even documenting that note so that the insurance company deems it medically necessary? If you answered yes, well, then come join me, Michelle Dawson, for this dynamic podcast presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Who am I, you ask? Well, I'm a self-described SLP geek with, as my family says, a touch of the ADD and ADHD. I have a passion for serving the least of these, namely the most complex and involved pediatric patients in their natural environment through my private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in the Columbia, South Carolina metro area. I also have had the pleasure, and currently still am, traveling the country where I lecture on best practices for pediatric dysphagia and functional language acquisition delivered through an early intervention natural environment model. Are you still intrigued? Then come join me as I interview some amazing folks. And don't forget that you can submit questions for a Q&A or interview request topics to me via email at firstbite at speechtherapypd.com or on our Facebook page 
And also check out our website, drop a review, subscribe to obtain those coveted Ashna CEUs. All right, folks, let's get right to it. Welcome back to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. The topic of today falls in the fed and functional categories. I am once again joined by the amazing Miss Erin Forward, MSP, CF, SLP, our local Cola City, South Carolina gal by way of Rochester, New York. As I mentioned in all prior episodes together, this pod course is possible because of a seed she planted when she was a clinical practicum student of mine. And joyfully, a journey she has joined me on. So once again, thank you, Erin. In this episode, Erin and I will be tackling the dilemma that hopefully all SLPs run into when they're treating oral pharyngeal dysphagia and feeding therapy, that we are insufficient in isolation and there is way more to address. Now let those dramatic words sink in, folks. I will say it again, but maybe in a more colorful way. I do not believe in such a thing as a behavioral or sensory feeding-based disorder. You can cue your eye rolls and open your slack jaws now. Also, I'll give you time to catch your breath. I simply don't believe that they exist. Why? Because every time I have chased the swallow, we have found the missing link. Trust me, there is always a missing link. Okay, so you're thinking Michelle explain why. Well, here is my slightly crass, somewhat comedic, but also true story of food poisoning and why I no longer believe in behavioral or sensory-based feeding disorders in isolation. Okay, so a couple years ago, I was up in um, Providence, Rhode Island with my sweet friend, Miss Cheryl. And Miss Cheryl, who is like seriously several inches shorter than I am, but um, she calls me little one, um, is authentic Portuguese American. And she took me to an authentic Portuguese restaurant. Erin, you'll have to translate this word because I don't know how to say the word. She ordered a flaming wiener. It's a chur- chorizo. Chorizo. Yes. A sausage. A sausage. Yes. <laughs> so... There was authentic Portuguese wine, and she orders all of this in Portuguese, and she brings out the chorizo, chorizo, and they pour this like clear liquid on it, and then she goes, okay, little one, don't blow, and I'm like, hit, 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 and she's like, no, seriously, behave yourself, Michelle, and I was like, what will happen? She's like, you'll burn down the building, so I was like, okay, so they poured the liquid, they light the thing on fire, and then we proceed to eat it and consume mommy juice, and we're having a blast, and close to the end of the flaming wiener, she goes, don't eat this one, little one. And I'm like, wait, snap, what happened? Because like I ate the bite right next to the flaming end that didn't burn all the way through. And it turns out it was not cooked. They bring you the chorizo, chorizo, chorizo raw, and then they light it on fire and cook it in front of you. So that's what happened. So several hours later, I had a very negative sensory experience of crash course diet and things from all orifices. And I lost like four pounds in a night. It had nothing to do with the mommy juice. But I say that because I'm a somewhat educated, intelligible adult, right? 
I had a negative behavioral or negative sensory experience, right? Based off of a medical etiology of food poisoning and made the behavioral choice to never eat a flaming wiener again. And for a brief period of time, I lost hot dogs um, and corn dogs and basically any tube shaped Mm -hmm. sausage because I'm not doing that. Okay. So that's my explanation, but I can explain that. And most of our patients can't explain the negative sensory experience or their day-to-day level of constant pain that they're in. So if you've hung with me and if you have stuck through my unabashedly poop and vomit filled story, then you now get why I believe in the importance of a team approach to feeding disorders. It's always a team and a huge part of that team is us, the lowly SLP that makes the referrals to the specialists. And I said it, I'm going to own it. I called us the lowly SLP. We have historically failed as a profession to explain our importance in the medical world. Unfortunately, we are the redheaded stepchildren of the rehab department, but that's a call for action. And it's a call for action that we'll cover on another day. And trust me, I have some ideas for that episode, but today we're going to earn our merit by being an advocate and making referrals for our quote unquote sensory or behavioral feeding aversions. And the lovely Miss Erin is going to join us on our rationale journey as to why. So Miss Erin, before we get ahead of ourselves and go into the podcast, tell the fabulous folks who have just joined us who you are and um, your new exciting stuff that you're doing Monday through Friday. Um, So for those of you who don't know, I went to the University of Pittsburgh for undergrad where I got my degree in psychology and communication science and disorders. I then moved my butt down south where it's warmer (laughs) to the University of South Carolina where I graduated in August with my master of speech pathology and I have just started working as a home health early intervention therapist and we'll have a full caseload next week. Yay! <laughs> so I am in the cor- in the um, course of making a lot of referrals. So this is very uh, appropriate for me right now. So first, we want to talk about the scope of practice of an SLP and where that ends and where when we need to make a referral. So the scope of practice for feeding. We used to be told that we were over the oral preparatory, oral, and pharyngeal stage of dysphagia, and that the second the swallow hit the esophageal stage, like the um, cricoesophageal sphincter, we graciously bowed out, and it went straight over to GI. Well, that um, that has since changed, and now they're doing some amazing research out of Florida. Um, If anybody went to ASHA last year when it was in, no, it was ASHA Connect in Minneapolis. So that would be two ASHA Connects ago. Um, They've got some great research out about how what we have cracked up to as a oral preparatory stage of the swallow issue. So the kids pocketing the food, um, the kids holding the bolus, um, they're holding it in the roof of their mouth and the palate, um, or they're doing like piecemeal deglutition. When they actually chase it downstream, Um, They're finding um, uh, esophageal dysmotility strictures, uh, esophageal echolasia, where the LES, the lower esophageal sphincter, is not um, opening to allow the bolus to completely pass through. Um, And they're finding this by actually doing the instrumental exams, the modified barium swallow studies, not the fees. 
So what the, the, in the lecture, they said, Hey, don't just stop when you request a swallow study. Don't just stop at the UES request an esophagram scan. Well, Anybody out there that's actually doing modifieds, you understand how frustrating that is because a lot of times the radiologist doesn't want to give you permission to do and actually follow that swallow all the way down because that's a separate test that they can bill for. We couldn't do that on the same day at the hospital I was at. Okay. It would have to be two separate tests. And and that's because of billing, mm-hmm. which, which does a patient a disservice because if you're trying to chase which viscosity is the safest for them to be on, mm-hmm. um, you have to have that information to complete the swallow all the way down. So what we're finding is that our scope is actually kind of expanding on the, for lack of a better phrase, like the terminating or tail end of the swallow because it encroaches into GI and radiology. So in a case-by-case scenario, you actually have to work with and make a pitch to that radiologist or whoever's in your radiology department, or if you're the home health SLP like us, you got to make a pitch to the hospital SAP as to why they need to do this and get them on board with getting their radiology and GI. So it's this snowball effect. Uh, there's some really good resources. Uh, Tom Francesmi, he's wonderful. He has a ton of CEUs out and he has one specifically on esophageal stage dysphagia. And actually Asha has a new one on esophageal dysphagia that I personally want to take, but I haven't done it yet because we've been a little mm-hmm. busy. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> a little busy. <laughs> Halloween's coming. We, we, we've had to prepare for the family Justice League costume. I'm going as Wonder Woman. I'm very excited. <laughs> I beat my three-year-old son. Bear wanted to be Wonder Woman. He is not. I called it. <laughs> All right. So on the front end of the swallow, we overlap with occupational therapist. And that's really kind of mind-boggling because a lot of people – are used to thinking that OTs only do fine motor. You want to make an OT mad, tell them that they have to stick to stringing beads, stacking blocks, handwriting, handwriting. That's their favorite handwriting without tears. They will shoot you dead with laser eyes, like laser eyes. (laughs) Like that will not proceed anywhere. So what we have to recognize is that their specialty is getting that food from hand to mouth, which is huge because how many of our kids don't simply know how to feed them themselves, as well as getting that child regulated and centered and calm. And if I want to introduce a challenge food, I sure as anything cannot give a challenge food to a kid who's Uh, just thrown out more reflex because they don't feel secure trying to climb into a seat and their body's gone into fight or flight. I can't expect an appropriate mastication, deglutition, respiration pattern if the child's feet are hanging two feet off of the floor and they're not grounded and in a competent 90-90-90. Okay, I just did that and you can't see it. A 90-degree angle at your hips, a 90-degree angle at your knees, and a 90-degree angle um, at your ankle. You need three nineties, not just your um, hips and your kneecaps, but we overlap with OTs there. And to take it another step further, we also overlap with PTs, which is a hard buy-in when we work with some physical therapists that think, Hey, you're way upstream above the clavicle. You should be working with the occupational therapist. But if that child's house is built on sand, if their core and diaphragmatic musculature is shot, there's no way that they're going to have the prerequisite skills for cup drinking, simply being able to raise their elbows up to bring that cup up to their mouth. So 
we overlap with the physical therapist and that perspective, because a lot of times we're the ones that are having to just kind of rig seating together to get them in a proper positioning. Or if they're not doing it from those lower extremities, from those gross motor, they're not going to do it in their mouth. Yes. If they're not reaching across midline with their arm, they're not going to be able to lateralize the bolus in their mouth. Yes, absolutely. Because if they can't cross midline for a big gesture, those fine gestures are shot always. What is it? Motor, you... They develop motor from the bottom up and sensory from the outside in. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, those feet need to be grounded before anything is going to go on um, in their oral prep phase. I'm just, I'm just sitting over here blushing like a super proud mom that, I mean, yay. (laughs) Yes, that's perfectly stated. Okay. All right. So our scope of practice has overlaps. Also the aerodigestive portion. We do such a disservice to the kids that we're treating because we don't take a look at the aero portion of their aerodigestive tract. Our our bodies are built for respiration and not for deglutition. So our children that have hypertrophy of the adenoids, um, hypertrophy of the palatine tonsils, um, that causes children to become obligatory mouth breathers. So when you're an obligatory mouth breather and your mouth is open, at rest because you're having to move air, what happens is your tongue pops up out of the floor of the mouth. The tongue tells your mandible to grow. We know this from our Pierre Robin um, sequence literature. It used to be Pierre Robin syndrome. It's not actually a syndrome. It's Pierre Robin sequence. It's a series of events or a a sequential um, problem that happens in like the primordial soup stage in utero. So everybody do your double chin, put your chin up on your sternum. And when you tuck your head down like that, you should take a picture of this. (laughs) When you tuck your, when you tuck your, your chin down onto your sternum, what happens is your tongue pops up out of the floor of your mouth. I can't talk and hold that position. And the, and it inhibits your actual mandible from growing. Well, that's how Pierre Robin starts, but our pediatric population that has um, blockages to their aerodigestive tract. If their tongue is up, it causes the mandible to have micronanthia, and then it causes this narrow high palate because the tongue doesn't flatten out the top palate like it should. I say all this because I can't really fix any of that until we fix the airway and we can't fix the airway because we are not the otolaryngologist. We got to get these kids to the ENT. So if you see a child at rest that's an obligatory mouth breather, then my goodness, yes, you got to get them there. Um, there I actually had a lovely email from, and I'm going to give you a shout out um, because this was absolutely spot on. Miss Rebecca. Rebecca um, sent me, um, so if you're listening, Rebecca, totally jive 110% with everything you said about the arrow portion of the aerodigestive tract. And that's where she segues into the myofascial uh, approach to therapy. And I'll be truthful. I've never taken a myofascial course. So, but I got to tell you, lady, after reading your email, spot on, I'm, I'm going to, um, I'm going to save up some pennies and take a course the tail end of next year, because I've got my CLC class I've saved up for, for an early birthday present. (laughs) Okay. All right. So 
we have to recognize the problems in order to get these kids to the specialist. Oh, and GI. Children shouldn't vomit. If you have a kid that's vomiting, I love how that often coincides with the failure to thrive diagnosis. Or if they've got severe refusals and they've got failure to thrive with these hard mouth-formed, irregular colored stools, again, I'm not GI, but I have to recognize signs and symptoms to make the referral to GI. So our scope of practice is oral prep, oral pharyngeal, as well as esophageal, but we also have to be able to get them properly postured. And ASHA has a really good position statement out on SLP scope of practice, as well as a position statement specifically for SLPs who practice in early intervention. And it is within our code of ethics to make referrals, which, okay, flip it back to you. Mm-hmm. You just graduated, love. How comfortable are you calling the pediatrician? Oh, it's terrifying. <laughs> okay. So how what are you doing to address that? Um, I mean, doing it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, right? Okay. Well, you, you almost feel like you have to justify your position that you know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I think I've had the most luck with, like, the special needs nurses mm-hmm. because they get it. I mean – they, they see the kid more. They, all their kids are getting a lot of referrals. Um, knowing your doctors, learning them, learning mm-hmm. the best way to go about things, maybe making it their idea <laughs> somehow. <laughs> Convincing them that they already decided that they're doing this. Yeah. But I think helping them understand how you got to that point, not just calling and being like, I think they need a referral to developmental peds. I think they need a referral to OT. Like, how is it affecting them? How is this going to affect their development? Because, I mean, what is it? Medical students get one hour on language development. And, mm-hmm. like, I don't even know how much on any of the other stuff. So it's helpful. Yeah, they're a doctor, but they could – we're educated all the time. Do- educating doctors is not something to be taken lightly to. Yep. They don't know everything. That's that's just it. They know what they know. They don't know what they don't know. Just like we don't know what we don't know, but we see the sign or symptom. We should chase it. We should make the referral. Mm-hmm. Yes. Perfect. Okay. All right. So, so I'll, I'll quit talking now so, so we can go on. Um, so we already talked about quite a few of referrals that you make. What would you say are the top three specialists you refer to and why? Okay. So my absolute favorite is um, the ENT. Uh, because your BFFs. Yeah. Well that, I mean, I, I totally adore and respect him and, um, yeah, he, no, but any SLP <laughs> should be a BFF with the ENT. Yeah. You, you, I mean, I'm biased. The ENT that I love also did surgery on my tiny humans and he's a very skilled clinician and we do have him down for a podcast coming up on aerodigestive track. I'm, we're going to record in the next couple of weeks, but Yes, ENT. You, if you don't have a pediatric ENT that is your like on speed dial person, bring all the donuts to their office, feed all their nurses, get in with them, uh, because a lot of what we see is driven by airway management. Whether it is a strider, if you hear, if you walk in the door and you can hear that baby strider from across the room, the first thing you should be thinking of is laryngomalacia and trachomalacia. And there was the mis, um, the old 
notion that when the baby hits six months of age, they'll outgrow laryngomalacia because their larynx drops and it grows farther away from the epiglottis, but it does not change the baseline uh, hypotonia of structures and abnormality in the shape of the epiglottis. Most of those kids actually need it medically managed because that laryngomalacia, trachomalacia, the enlarged adenoids, the enlarged palatine tonsils, also adenoids can grow back, folks. Adenoids mm-hmm. can grow back. Those irregularities occlude their airway at rest and can also cause obstructive sleep apnea, which is oxygen deprivation to the brain. So you're taking a special needs child who's at risk for an intellectual disability and then depleting their body of oxygen. It's going to increase the likelihood of exacerbation of an intellectual disability. And it doesn't let them sleep. So their brain's not developing because they're awake half the night because they can't breathe. Yes, which makes the parents awake, which disrupts the entire flow of a family. And then we walk in and we ask them to follow through with one component of a home exercise program. Or in case you guys didn't read it, uh, this month's ASHA leader, Coaching Parents and Early Intervention, a language game plan. How in the world are you going to be able to get those parents to get down on the floor and get involved with therapy if nobody's sleeping? So I very much recommend an ENT. I, 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 I recommend GI a lot. Because what we find is that a lot of our behavioral feeding aversions where they're pushing away, actually, hold on, red light, feeding matters. If y'all have not checked out feeding matters, get on feedingmatters.org. They've got some data out that I think it says like, what is it? Like 10%, three to 10% of, of feeding issues are driven by behavioral Mm -hmm. feeding aversions. But I really, really think that number is super high because we're not getting into the meat and potatoes of the issue. A lot of those kids, especially if they're tube fed, they can't tell you that they're full. If you've got a baby that's continuous overnight feeds and then fed three ounces every three hours on a slow drip, then then they're not going to be able to tell you when I don't want to eat because they're in a constant state of satiation. And, and that's a huge problem. All right. So we go on with The kid is completely full and doesn't have the capacity to tell you, no, no more, it hurts. And then they start vomiting. So, and it doesn't have to be children that are low functioning that can't tell you they're full. I mean, I'm thinking right now, I got a kid that's turning four in January who's scoring above the charts for IQ and bless his heart, he's got, he was a picky eater. So that, that almost four-year-old whose IQ is like above average and he had VPI. He had a congenital heart defect. He's, uh, what else is going on? We finally got him down there because he's not gaining weight. And his heart defect was repaired when he was two weeks old. So it doesn't make sense why he's not gaining weight. Well, he's taking in four pediatures a day. And I finally get him to the location I, down south. Y'all, you know me. I like to send him down to MUSC. I get him down there. They do the GI motility study. He's got significant um, distension of his stomach and significant GI uh, motility. And nobody's put this kid on periactin to move the stool through. Y'all need to know your drugs. Uh, Periactin helps. It's like a low dose at this, a a 
azithromycin. So when I say know your drugs, know your drugs, maybe not necessarily how to pronounce them, but it's basically like a low dose Z pack and it moves the stool through. And then um, Aripad is a stimulant to increase appetite. If you got a kid who's on Aripad to stimulate appetite because it's a steroid, but they're still not pooping or they're having super hard dried out stools, then something's not right. So I love making referrals to GI. And then for feeding, I don't know, I'd say the next one would be a really awesome registered dietitian split with a phenomenal SLP who can um, do the instrumentals. Because I feel like most of the time when we have these children that are quote unquote behavioral or picky feeders, they only have like a set amount of food that they'll work. So when you're food chaining out, you have to know caloric, dense, uh, metabolic rich foods but you still have to know that the safety of the swallow is intact and that there's no blockage all the way down. So technically four are my go-to. You have more than that. So like getting you to say three was hard. (laughs) It was Uh because I wanted to like word vomit the rest of them. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yep. There it is. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it goes into, I don't think you can properly treat a child unless you know what's actually going on. And if you're wrong, you're wrong. I think if you send a kid to ENT thinking that they're, you know, hypertrophy of the adenoids or their tonsils are huge or possibly they have like a minor laryngomalacia and you're wrong, then okay, that's checked off. And I realize that that's not what's going on. But if you sit here not unaware of the actual etiology, then what are we actually doing? We, we could be compounding on the problem. Yes. And you can't write a competent plan of care until you have all your data points, because how are you going to fix what you don't know that's broke? Mm-hmm. I mean, I've thought a kid had EOE and it was celiac. I've thought a kid, I've thought a couple kids had VPI. They were classic VPI signs. And I get them down South and come to find out they had flaccid dysarthria. Like who would have thought those children did? I mean, such textbook, Everything. And I was wrong, but we but you got them to where they needed to be. Yes. And then we took our data points and then changed from there. So mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. Okay. So um, in certain parts of the country, we know that there's PTs and OTs involved in treatment for oral pharyngeal dysphagia. So how do we overlap and why? Why? <laughs> okay. All right. So um, OTs, absolutely. It's and I've gone and when I lectured in California like a year and a half ago, I was blown away that in certain parts of the state, the PTs are doing the feeding and swallowing evals in the NICU. And several PTs that I talked to were not happy with it. They were not comfortable with it, but I guess their scope of practice had expanded. And so they were pretty, um, they were doing everything they could to get caught up on continuing ed so that they could um, safely and ethically treat the children that they were now being asked to treat. But OTs, it actually, you're going to see them in the NICU. You're going to see them in all the same I setting. love doing feeding with OTs. Yes. It's amazing. I had, when I was at the hospital, there was an SLP and an OT, and you could tell they worked together forever. You could tell they had didn't agree on everything, but that's what made each of them better. Because it allowed them to look at the other person's point of view. And we'd go into an eval and both of them would like look at the child. And I swear they had like telepathic communication <laughs> because they knew what the other one was thinking. Sister and, yeah. And the OT would look at full body and their ability to regulate 
you know, we got a 36 speaker, they're probably going to have trouble regulating any of the sounds going on, turn the TV off, make sure that they're swaddled, make sure their feet are at a 90 degree angle. And then we could go in and look at like all the oral function. But until she looked at that child and got them situated and got the mother and centered and positioned properly, like our job was at the end. And it was so amazing. I learned so many things from her because I was like, oh, no wonder that the child had strider because they were sitting up and because mom couldn't hold, this was a specific example where mom had surgery and couldn't hold the child. So we were positioning on a pillow. She was like, I was like, no wonder that was the case. No wonder that this kid was like flailing because he was so out of whack with his like vestibular system and everything. So I love, I think they're great. But that's just it. We have to have them. And, but finding an OT who's comfortable with feeding is it's, it's, like there's not a lot of SLPs are all super comfortable with feeding. Like we're still learning how to be comfortable with feeding. Like, I mean, my God, I thought I knew what I was doing. Then I became a mom and I was like, I didn't have a frigging clue what I was doing because like none of that, that I said for the last two years was right. And now I'm a parent and uh, that's yeah, your whole world changes. Um, especially when it comes to like delivering functional advice and getting the families to buy into, I went from giving them like 10 things to do, like do this one thing, just this one thing mm-hmm. for a week. But yeah, oh, we have to have the OT involvement and, and PT, it gets back to positioning, especially for our kiddos that have CP or our children that have hemiplegia, like quadriplegia due to a stroke in utero or um, a traumatic brain injury due to shaken babies. One of those big, bad, ugly situations we need them to give us the insight and the support to get proper positioning. And sometimes it boils down to the child can functionally swallow and take PON if they're positioned, but the equipment they have in the home is insufficient. So we need to work with the physical therapist to write uh, an appeals letter to get the adaptive equipment. I'm thinking of a letter in particular that I wrote asking for a special tomato chair and I but I couldn't convince the physical therapist to get on board with assisting me in that. And I didn't have a clue what I was writing. Like, luckily the durable medical equipment guy was like, okay, so this is a bad one. Let me help Mm -hmm. you. But I had never done it before. Um, Also to come to find out that the special tomato chair, you can get embroidered with your kids initials and like giant colors. And I think that's precious because honey, we work in the South and I'm like, so you can get like a purple insert with like hot pink, like, cause why not? I mean, Oni, if we're going to label our pillowcases, we might as well label our chairs. Cause that's (laughs) well, but with those kids too, you need to understand that you have to understand what their functional potential is Mm -hmm. and how, you know, that, that family may really, really want that kid to eat this certain food, but you need to understand that as much as I do with this oral prep phase and their mastication, like they, I can't work on that unless they're positioned properly or because they're using too much core strength. But I don't fully understand that. Mm -hmm. I don't understand that. Like if they're, you know, slacking in the chair. Well, I mean, I've been, I've grown to learn that, but if they're slacking in the chair, there's no way that they're going to be able to build up that extra strength to masticate properly. Yes. So knowing that they can do things with compensatory strategies, but they may not be able to develop all of those skills to do at once. Like a kid that can like bear that can sit in his chair and be chewing food and like spinning around in circles. (laughs) 
<laughs> Anybody else out there got a three-year-old and try to get them to sit still during mealtime? Because I don't know about you, but in my household, that doesn't really happen very well. Also, last night he managed to feed the dog, his corn dog, and then turn around and say, oh, but it fell down, Mommy, and I need pirate candy. Also, California Elks, Hawaii, um, California Hawaii Elks, ladies, thank you for the chocolate candy. I can firmly attest that that has been devoured, not by the dog. <laughs> All right. Okay. But OTPT, there is a shared overlap. Oh, OTs. Also, the two best feeding tube clinics in the world to get the kid off of a feeding tube. The two best clinics in the world, SLPs aren't even invited. There's one in Vancouver and the original one's in Austria. And SLPs are not even on the cool club list. Okay. It's driven by OTs. If you go to Canada, occupational therapists are first and foremost involved in feeding and swallowing and not speech pathologists. So these are regional national variations, but as an SLP, my takeaway point should be, okay, they clearly know something that we don't know and how much more progress can we make by working collaboratively with that profession? So reach out to them and ask them because I'm telling you what, I have gotten more work done with the kiddos when you put a weighted blanket in their lap and they're properly grounded. We can progress to challenge foods then. Mm -hmm. Also, again, I don't feed the kids, if at all possible. I teach the children to feed themselves to engage the oral preparatory stage. I can't stress that one enough. Mm-hmm. Okay. And one last thing. Yes. I know we just word vomit all the time. But <laughs> aside from just looking at their feeding, like you can go in, look at a child, and especially if you've learned from the PT or OT, be like, oh, okay, something whole body is going on. Like mm-hmm. even though it's not – our scope where it's okay. Like we're supposed to notice those signs. Like I saw a kid recently and for feeding and he's at like one and a half only drinking from a bottle and I'm watching him walk and he, his balance is so off. Like he'll be standing there and just kind of fall backwards. And I'm like, something is not right. I don't know. I'm never going to know. So we need like an OT and a PT in here to figure out what's going on because I know enough to know gross motor and fine motor are not developing properly and typically. Yep. But, but that's just it. They trained you what to look for, where the point of system breakdown was. Mm-hmm. Yep. Or even if you're just like, something's off, like you may not be able to say exactly what it is. You know, have seen enough kids to know something's off and then talk to the pediatrician about it and see what they think. Yeah. And I, squeaky wheel gets the cheese. If you lean in and advocate for these kids and write it in your notes, when you go out and do the eval and when you're writing your initial plan of care, you can make a therapeutic recommendation for referral in. I have written plenty of of goals that have said a patient will participate in instrumental swallow exam to determine safest, least restrictive PO diet. And I simply will not write a feeding goal until we get the instrumental because that kid is not safe. And it kind of gets to that point where if you walk in and that child is clearly off, wrong, delayed gross motor, fine motor, then write in your referrals um, and the billing program that you and I both use actually, um, and we can't say who it is, but I'm sure numerous folks out there are using it. Mm -hmm. It gives you an option at the bottom to simply click off and then a justification box. Mm -hmm. And you can utilize that justification box. Patient does not 
uh, have command of the prerequisite skills is unable to sit up straight, unable to bring hand. Yes, perfect. This podcast is brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. SpeechTherapyPD.com is an engaging, evidence-based continuing education site that offers over 450 continuing education hours. The best part? The information garnered can be applied in therapy immediately. It's functional and fabulous without the hassle of trying to translate technical jargon from a research article. Can I entice you more? Well, then get your suntan lotion ready because next summer, SpeechTherapyPD.com is hosting a CEU cruise. That's right. July 27th through August 3rd of 2019, the amazing, delightful, and oh-so-kind Char Beauchart, M-A-C-C-C-S-L-P, will be the featured speaker for 12-plus continuing education hours on a cruise ship through Greece. That's right. You heard it right. Greece. Want to get the preview or want to catch a preview of the information she's going to share? Then tune into her pod course, The Speech Link, which is also eligible for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Maybe, oh, just maybe, I'll see y'all in Greece. So our last question for today, Um, maybe stir in the pod a little bit. I never. We would never do that. <laughs> Where does an ABA therapist come into play? Ha. We haven't mentioned them yet this whole podcast. Yes, because it's a very heated discussion. Okay. So that's another scope of practice encroachment, right? Yes, no, maybe so. ABA therapy, when it comes to feeding, has it written into their I don't want to say licensure, but their guidelines that they are allowed to treat a feeding disorder when it is not a documented oropharyngeal dysphagia. You can get on there and you can look at their scope. Mm -hmm. Okay. However, I had a situation a couple years ago where I was treating a kid and got him into a really awesome ABA school. And it was awesome. I I firmly believe that when ABA is done right and we work together, we can do beautiful things for our kids. There's, uh, I've actually pegged down one of my favorite ABA therapists to do a a podcast together. She's so phenomenal that whenever I picked up one of her kids and we were using a speech generating device, that ABA therapist is so amazing that After I go in and I do my eval and we get set with the right speech generating device and the right core vocab for that particular child, I could give her a phone call and she would schedule a whole team meeting. It would be her, her lead, her line therapist, everybody, because she's BCBA. She's BCBA and actually getting her PhD too um, here in town. Um, But I I need to connect you Mm -hmm. to her. If you're local and you want somebody amazing, message me and I will gladly like connect you to this guru ABA person. But we do an intense family training with the mom, the dad, as well as all of the child's ABA team. And they would utilize the device. I was running point on the language, but they're the ones that are in there for the 40 hours a week. And that child made so much progress. So we then put the kid over in an ABA school and the I mean, that kid made, he just blossomed from a language perspective and bless his heart. He had had a a cardiac condition, a congenital heart defect, and he coded twice on the table when he was six months old. And after he coded and he came to, 
I mean, he survived the repair. He went self-imposed MPO. He'd been exclusively breastfed for the prior six months. And after that, so it, he just, mm-hmm. he refused all POs. They had to do a feeding tube. I mean, I got a kid and he was like almost five years age. So the most recent swallow study, the child had clearly um, could tolerate thin liquids and could tolerate pureed foods, but anything that was McChop consistency, he would have premature spillage of the bolus and aspiration. Just, he did not know. Which is bad. Which is bad. Yeah. Clear. We don't want that in your No, lungs. we don't want that. Clear oropharyngeal dysphagia. So I had been going in and we've been doing uh, a modified SOS approach with like a little bit of food chaining to boot mm-hmm. and slowly progressing the diet up. I mean, we're like chunky purees and he was starting to accept those. Right. I come in to the school because it's like not, it's like an ABA program. So it wasn't like a technical school. So I go into there to do therapy and the 18 year old line therapist has a bag of Chex Mix with nuts on the desk. And it clearly said feeding program. And I about came out of my skin. So I went down the hall and I said, now should can you go get your, uh, your, your coordinator for me? So she came around the corner, um, came around the corner. She was hot when she came around the corner. She was mad. And she flared her little nostril with her little um, uh, ring in it, little nose ring in it at me. And I said, now, darling, I see that you have a feeding program that y'all have been working on. And she goes, we do. It's in our scope. And I said, yes, ma'am, I am well aware of your scope as I have dealt with ABA practice encouragement. And I also know it is not in your scope to treat a child that has an oral pharyngeal dysphagia with known aspiration risk. And she leans in and she goes, what's aspiration? Oh, oh my God. I was like, (laughs) and then I explained that enough. I said enough. I proceeded to explain what aspiration was. And I said, he's not know how to control a bolus beyond like a pureed viscosity. And she goes, what's a bolus. And in like deep, dark, scary Michelle land, I reached up and like pulled the nose ring out of her head. I mean, like I didn't really, but like I just, in your head, in my head I did because I do a lot of things in my head. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have a little bit of anger. We're working <laughs> through it. I'm a really happy person until I'm not, right? So like, bless. We educated. I actually ended up discharging that kid because the mom came in and the mom turns to me and says, okay, so they get to work with him for 40 hours a week. And I said, mom, they don't know what aspiration is and they don't know what a bolus is. Mom, you're actually an RN. You know what those terms do are. These people don't know and they're treating your child's quote unquote feeding aversion. This is not. This is an oral pharyngeal dysphagia that's clearly been documented. So if they're going to treat, then ethically I have to get out because right now they're letting their 18-year-old line therapist shadow and observe me and she's recreating that thinking she knows what she's doing which is going to, I mean, that, that poor 18 year old kid. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so I ended up getting out the mom chose to have the ABA do it. And I have wondered since then how that shook out. But I say that because ABAs do get a significant amount of time with them. Mm -hmm. And for a kid that's behavioral in isolation, like if you have a child that's very violent, but you have teased out all the medical, then if you've teased out all the medical and everything is being managed and it's still behavioral, then get the OT. That's one thing. That's one Mm -hmm. thing. But very, very, very rarely is it only behavioral. So I do believe that we have 
an awesome opportunity for co-treatments with ABA when it comes to language acquisition. And there are some phenomenal BCBA SLPs that are also seed out there that, man, they, they know their stuff and they get those kids verbal and functional communication and spot on. Awesome job. Kudos to them. But when it comes to treating an oropharyngeal dysphagia, that is that is not their realm mm-hmm. that is ours in conjunction with occupational therapy. So now that numerous women are aghast and like, ah! no, probably not. I mean, there might be a dude out there that's like, ah! but just kidding. I like the pitch change there. Yeah. That I was good. trying. Mm-hmm. I, I aim. aim to yeah. please. <laughs> I mean, I think the biggest thing too is know your scope because you have a leg to stand on, know what their scope is, understand that because, you know, don't encroach too much where it's not our place. But mm-hmm. when someone comes at you, I mean, it's your scope. It is what it is. That's mm-hmm. all you can say. Yep. And and you have to be educated. And for the younger listeners, because you're younger, ageism is a thing. So you're going to have to mm-hmm. know your stats and know your points um, harder, more quicker. Um, it, you just, yeah. you have to be able to stand on the ashes. SIG 13 journal articles have a lot of really amazing functional information for, and they actually do delve into co-treatments with like OT and PT and mm-hmm. uh, referrals. And so there's some, there's some good, there's some good stuff there, but I say that cause dig it up, read it and be able to <laughs> be able to word vomit it to the physicians as to why you want to get the kid there. But use your big words, use your big words. That's when you're like, okay, we can talk to the parent in code switch and code switch, but code switch hard when you're talking to the pediatrician. So he's like, okay, yes, this girl knows her stuff. Yeah. It's another word, but <laughs> exactly. But, and, but, and when you write your, when you write your reports, mm-hmm. make sure that you're using professional technical jargon. Don't be afraid to say patient presenting with overt sign symptoms up. Don't be afraid to say patient presenting with uh, wet strider right. on inhalation or exhalation. Describe in detail so that they understand what it is that you're seeing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. All right, folks. That was a lot to take in. We chased quite a nice swallow today. (laughs) Okay. I'm sure some of y'all are still spinning, but before we switch over to questions, I just wanted to let y'all know that speechtherapypd.com will be at ASHA this year at booth number 669. What? Yes, we're going to be there. So please be sure to stop by and say hi. Tell us what you love about the podcast and what topics you'd like for us to address in upcoming episodes. And I am stoked to say I'll see you there in a few short weeks. Also, if anybody wants to like get their nerd on and do like a nerdy tour of Boston, like I am so game because I I minored in history Mm -hmm. because of just how nerdy I am. So yes. So we'll see you there. Make sure you swing by speechtherapypd.com booth number six. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, 
Remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Bye.